Boker Tov. All right, that's how you say good morning in Israel. So let's do that. I'm going to teach you. Boker Tov. Boker Tov. All right, let's try that again. One, two, three. Boker Tov. All right, now you guys are all ready. Oh, about 15 months from now, spring of 2015, you guys are all ready to go back with us to Israel on our next trip. So be planning that. We're going we're gonna to start putting all of that together. After the first of the year, we'll have more information about the specifics on that. But uh, springtime 2015, that's the plan. And now you know how to say good morning when you go. It's good to be back. God bless you guys. Take out your Bibles. Open them up to the book of First Peter, chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, under a seat close by in front of you, there should be a black hardcover copy of the Bible. Please take that out. Copy of God's Word. Open that up. 1 Peter chapter 5. If you don't own a Bible, please take that one home with you. Make that one yours. We, this morning, God willing, will finish chapter 5. Peter now is kind of signing out the letter. He's bringing it all together in in his closing statements in, in this letter that he wrote to the early church. And Again, as we start our study this morning, chapter 5 begins with that word, therefore, as many times our studies do, and it draws our attention back to where we finished off a couple of weeks ago. And if you'll remember, Peter was talking about the fact that we will face tribulation, we will face trials, suffering will come our way, it shouldn't catch us off guard, we should be prepared for it, we should be braced for it, it's part of life that we, that we face. And he talks through that. As a matter of fact, in verses 12 through 19 of chapter 4 that we covered last time, he talks over and over of of suffering and and judgment and difficulty and, and trials. But in the end of it all, he says again, we entrust our souls to a faithful creator. We know that we serve a God who loves us, as we just sang, a God who loves us so much that he took our place. He died in our place, entrusting him with our very lives. Well, he begins our, our section, verse, verses 1 through 4. He's now going to address the leaders within the church as he starts out his closing. And he says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. He begins now speaking to the, the, the pastors, the elders, the leaders of the churches, that those terms are used interchangeably in, in Peter's time, deacons, pastors, elders, overseers. And in context, specifically, he's talking to them. Now, in God's plan, God, this perfect God that has a perfect plan, he chooses to use imperfect shepherds to shepherd the flock. And by the way, they're part of the flock. And I, I, I love this because Peter's a fisherman, but he goes back to using the terminology that Jesus used so often and that David referenced to, the flock of God. We are his flock. Sheep is what, what, what we are referenced to over and over. And that's what we are, the flock of God, Jesus being the chief shepherd. But I love one thing that we're going to see 
utilized over and over here, that he's going to reference to over and over, the humility that we are called to have, all of us, as leaders, as, as members of the flock, but ultimately, look at how Peter addresses them. He says, as your fellow elder, total humility, total humility of Peter. He doesn't say, no, listen up, Pope Peter the first here, I got, I got news for you. No, he says, guys, I'm just like you. I'm just like you. I'm a member of the flock. Yes, God has called me to, to be a shepherd in this flock, but ultimately he's the chief shepherd. I'm just one of you that's been given this, this amazing calling in spite of myself, in spite of my failures. And again, he's, he's speaking specifically to elders and leaders in the church, but we can all gather from this because we've all been called to ministry. We've all been called, we've talked about this before, each one of us should be under the, the discipleship of someone, but we should also be discipling others. And in that, again, taking it a little bit out of context, because Peter, again, directly, specifically speaking to pastors, but all of us can learn by what he is saying that should be the motivation for this. It's not by force. It should be willingly. We should be enthusiastic to be pouring in to other people, pouring in to what we are receiving, pouring that into others, not motivated by greed, not for money, not for power, not for recognition, but, but motivated by, by growth, growth individually, but growth in others. Not to be served, but to serve. That's what Jesus said. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slaves. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. That's what, that's what Jesus said, and that is our example. He is our example, and we are called to be examples. In, in all areas, in all aspects of our life, we should walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. But specifically when it comes to ministering to others, to leading others, we need to lead by example. And I will call out all of us as parents specifically in this. We should never say the words that we've probably all heard as children and probably used, if we're going to be honest, hey, just do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> That should never come out of the lips of a Christian mentoring and, and discipling their children. No, it should be do what God says and follow me as I follow him. That's what Paul said. Follow me as I follow Christ. That should be us as the example. Jesus, our ultimate example, the chief shepherd. Well, he goes on, verse 5, starts addressing all of us as the, the sheep of the flock. He says, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He tells the leaders to lead in humility, but then he tells all of us as those who are under leadership, because no matter where you rise to, you are always under the leadership of someone else. Ultimately, we're all under the leadership of our chief shepherd, but leaders lead in humility. Those under leadership are to follow in humility. Now, it says here, it's interesting, be subject, hupotasso. Anybody remember that word when we went through it? Hupotasso, all the husband says, yeah, I do. Chapter three, verse one, <laughs> where it says, wives, be subject to your husbands. Yeah, I remember that. Hupotasso. Remember, it means to 
to place yourself under in an orderly fashion. There's a design behind it. It, does, it has nothing to do with status. It has everything to do with order. And that is what Peter is saying. All right, with the order of the flock, place yourselves under the authority of those over you. But notice he says, clothe yourselves in humility, all of you. All of us. We are all to be subject to one another. As a matter of fact, Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 says... Be subject, hupotasso, to one another in the fear of Christ. We are to be subject to one another. We are to place ourselves in an orderly fashion so that we, we work together. And notice he says in verse 5, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Clothe yourselves in humility. Now, obviously when we think of that, humility isn't a suit that you can go out to Walmart this afternoon and buy and put on. He's speaking metaphorically. However, Jesus modeled it so practically. When at the Last Supper, when at the end of his ministry, in, within hours he is going to be betrayed and he's going to go to the cross, he models clothing ourselves in humility by taking off his outer garments and placing a towel around himself and washing the disciples' feet. The ultimate act of humility, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, God Himself, taking the form of the lowest servant. That was the one, the guy that was lowest on the totem pole was the guy that, that was washing the people's feet when they came in. That is a disgusting job today to wash somebody's feet. It's even more so back then because they wore sandals and they walked around on streets and following the, in the streets where the horses and the mules and all the sheep were. So you can imagine what's all over their feet while they're walking. And the washing of the feet, Jesus in a total act of complete humility washed the disciples' feet, practically putting it on. When we are clothing ourselves in humility, it's an, it's, it is a matter of attitude, absolutely, but it also has to be a matter of action. I challenge each one of you today to wash somebody's feet. I don't mean that specifically. Don't go out afterwards and say, hey, take your shoes off, you know. But pray about that. How can you humbly serve somebody today? Husbands, your wives. Wives, your husbands, your kids, one another, humbly serving one another. Notice what he says at the end. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This, this isn't just a new thought that the Holy Spirit revealed to Peter. This is throughout Scripture. Psalms, Proverbs, Jesus said it, James says it. God is opposed to the proud. When we stand up and say, that is beneath me, I can't, I can't do that. I'm beyond that. I would have done that a while ago, but I'm the pastor now. God is opposed to the proud. And he gives grace to the humble. If you ever get to the point where you think, man, I can't do that's beneath me. I'm past that in my walk now. Go back to, again, what Jesus did, washing his disciples' feet. He's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. You choose. <laughs> you choose. Peter, assuming that we're all going to choose wisely, says in verse 6, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God. Again, metaphorically, we see this, this powerful hand of God, the hand that holds the universe in his, in his very hands. 
this mighty hand that we are to humble ourselves under. What does it mean to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? That means that we are completely subject to whatever he has for us. We, we say, Lord, whatever you would have, I submit to that. I'm not going to try to manipulate the circumstances. I'm not going to try to change the events or, or change the people around me. I'm going to humble myself, Lord, under your mighty hand because you're in control. We serve a sovereign God who controls everything in his mighty hands. And when we submit ourselves to that, we're saying, Lord, I'm good with the situations, with the people, and with the timing, with, with how things are coming along. We're not going to try to manipulate things to hurry them along. And when we do that, there's an amazing promise here in verse 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. When we do that, he says, that he may exalt you at the proper time. When we do that, only then the promise comes. That he may exalt you. First of all, who does the exalting? He does. He does the exalting. But it's interesting, that word exalt. Because exalt literally means to lift up, to raise up. And it's, and it's a word that doesn't mean just to kind of help you up off the ground or to get you to sit on a chair. It literally means to take you to the summit, to lift you up to the very top. And it does include prosperity. It speaks of prosperity. It speaks of dignity. It speaks of honor. It speaks of happiness. To raise you to that level. Now, he does it, and that's what it means. But when does it happen? At the proper time. Who decides that? God does. God does. And if you are not exalted now, if you have not reached that point, it's because it's not time yet. And if you don't like that, got bad news for you. <laughs> You know, I, 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 think, I think back to that movie we've probably, probably all seen. I've drawn a total blank on the name of it right now. But he says, I want the truth. And he says, you can't handle the truth. Right? Well, we say, Lord, I want to be exalted now. And God says, you can't handle it yet. You can't handle it yet. I know. I know the proper time. The proper time literally means an opportune time, the right time, and it is a decisive time, a set time. God's not arbitrary. God's not random. He knows the timing. He knows you, and he's working on that. So often, we get caught up in this, I want to be exalted. I want to be respected. I want people to look to me, and I'm tired of being trampled upon, and God says, you can't handle it yet. Peter understood this. Peter understands a lot of things by experience that we're going to look at as we go through this. Peter was arguing with the other disciples just a few hours before his feet were washed by Jesus saying, I'm most important. No, I'm most important. No, I'm going to be most important in the kingdom. They're arguing back and forth, and i got to imagine Jesus just, guys, after three years, you still just don't get it. And so often the same is with us. Lord, I'm ready. I want this. I, when are people are going to see this? Or how is this going to happen? When's this going to work out right? And he's just like, oh, I love you. I need you to understand that this is all part of a process. And when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt us at the proper time. Now, again, how do we do that? Practically, how do we do that? Well, I'm glad Peter tells us. Verse 7. 
casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Casting all our anxiety on him. See, the problem is we don't understand, first of all, this whole idea of casting. The, when I think of casting, I think of, of fishing. That's, that's kind of the, the first thought that comes to my mind when I'm thinking of casting. And I'll confess to you, the reason why I'm a horrible fisherman, I've never been any good at it, is because I'm no good at casting. I, oh, don't get me wrong, I'm good at throwing it out there. I can get it out there, but my problem is I, I bait my hook and I cast it out there. And the problem is, after about a minute or two, I'm like, hmm, I haven't caught a fish yet. <laughs> I wonder, I need to check my bait. <laughs> Reel it right in. Oh, yep, still there. All right, and I cast it back out there. And that process continues for an hour or so, and then I realize I haven't caught any fish yet. Well, the problem is, with our anxieties, we do the same thing. Here you go, Lord, I give it to you. And then we say, hmm, I better check on that. And we reel it back in, and we take the anxiety back upon ourselves. That's not the idea of what casting means. This, only used, this, this word is only used one other time, and it's used in Luke 19.35. And it's used there to mean the ca- when they cast their, their garments on the mule that Jesus then got on, on the donkey. Now, in that, we see a great picture of what we are to do with our anxieties. We're to cast them on the Lord. They didn't cast their garments on the donkey, and then Jesus got on, and they walked along with it, holding on with their hand, because as soon as you're done, Lord, I want this back. They didn't, hey, would you, would you get up for a second? I want to just make sure my, my garment's still okay. They cast it on the donkey. Jesus got on, and they followed along, but they didn't grab the garment back, and that's what we're to do with our anxieties. Cast them on the Lord. Completely cast them. Throw them away, never to be dealt with again. It's interesting. I I didn't check the facts, but I I would imagine that we probably all agree with the the statistics here. Somebody came up with these. Speaking of anxieties, 40% of the things we're anxious about will never happen. Can you relate to that? 30% of the things that we're anxious about are things that happened in the past that we can't do anything about. That's 70% of the things that we're anxious about. Either will never happen or they happened in the past and we can't change it. 12% of the things we're anxious about are criticisms by others, most of them untrue. Can you relate to that? 10% of the things we're anxious about are our health, and our health gets worse with stress. So we're, we're making matters worse by that. Bottom line, 8% of the things we're anxious about are, the, are real problems that we face. We're supposed to cast those on him too. But if we could get rid of the other 92% just because it's, it's dumb, it's less things to throw, to cast on him. Charles Spurgeon says, anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but it only empties today of its strength. Can you relate to that? doesn't change anything tomorrow, but it sure saps my strength today when I am worried and anxious about things. I, I spoke of this in the, in the little video clip from, from Israel last week. King David, again, he wasn't, he wasn't worried about being exalted. He says, Lord, I'm going to trust you with all of this. He, he had the opportunity to take his matters into his own hands and to kill King Saul so that he would take that place as king. He's already been anointed king. And his people said, here, here, he 
God's brought him right to you, right to the cave. Take care of it. Take it into your own hands. And he says, I will not place my hands on God's anointed. I'm not going to exalt myself. I'm going to trust God that he'll exalt me at the proper time. He casts all his anxieties on the Lord. Read the Psalms over and over again. He, he lays it out there. Lord, this is what I'm struggling with. This is what I'm dealing with. He's casting it all. And at the end of those Psalms, he says, but you're God and I trust you. I've used this comparison before, and it's so important that we understand it. The difference between surrender and commitment. There's, there's, a, there's a huge difference in that. We think of commitment as a great thing, but it's not surrender. When I think of casting our anxiety on the Lord, again, I'm not, I, would, I, I can't tell you, I would never do this unless my children's life were at stake, but I will never jump out of an airplane and I won't ever go bungee jumping. I have no desire. It's not even close to my bucket list. As a matter of fact, I'm scared of heights. You can keep your jokes to yourself. <laughs> but if I do, if I put myself in that situation, bungee jumping, you're standing there on the end if you're committed to jumping, no problem, <laughs> right? I, I, I can even commit to jumping. I'm not gonna, but I can commit to doing it. The problem is it's a vastly different thing than surrender. When you actually jump, that's when you're surrendered. You're completely now helpless. You're completely now out of control. You are completely relying on that rubber band tied to your back and the person who fastened it to the other end. <laughs> that is what it means to cast our anxieties. So many times, again, we commit them. We need to surrender them. Our whole life, all, he says, cast all your anxiety on him. Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your burden on the, on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken because he cares for you. Bottom line, guys, it comes down to these two things. If we are going to claim these promises, and this is important because we're coming to the next section here. We're going to move on in just a second. But this has to happen first. We have to completely humble ourselves and trust the Lord. If we don't, if we don't humble ourselves and surrender there's, we're going to have problems with this. Humility says, I am completely insufficient to handle my problems. Surrender means, God, I believe you're completely sufficient to take care of it. And both of those have to take place. When we do, he will exalt us in his proper timing. Now, this is so important because he moves from this statement to verse 8. He says, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Peter is speaking from personal experience here. He knows. He knows. As a matter of fact, Satan personally requested Peter specifically to sift like wheat. Now, 
One thing I want to clear up as a, as a misconception to a lot of people, people say the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. First of all, to clear up something, Satan, the devil, is not omnipresent. He can't be more than one place at one time. He is a created being. He's an angel, a fallen angel. He is not God. He's not on an equal playing field with God. He can only be in one place at one time. So if you think that Satan is personally tempting you, you get over yourself. <laughs> he's got a whole lot more important things he's focused on. He's probably somewhere else working on the Antichrist right now. But we all, we all are tempted and come, and come against our own individual adversaries, spiritual forces, demonic forces. We've talked about this in previous parts of the, of the study. They're very real. And Peter says we need to be of sober spirit. We need to be on the alert. That sober spirit means that we can't take this lightly. This isn't a joke. It requires urgent action. It's not passive. It's not apathetic. We need to be always ready, being alert, watchful, never putting our weapons down, never, never taking a nap in this battle. Now, we, we talked about this just moment, moments ago, the, the idea of humbly submitting ourselves. Why is this so important? Because of what we're talking about right now. If we're anxious about a whole bunch of other things, if we're worried about all of the different stuff, that's one of the tactics the enemy loves to use to get us focused where we shouldn't be focused. If I'm all worried about stuff that's coming up, if I'm all worried about this relationship, if I'm all worried about what people think of me, if I'm all worried about this, he's saying, perfect, perfect. You've taken your focus off of the shepherd. You're a sheep, remember? You're a lamb. You're a little lamb part of the flock of God. And lambs aren't very vicious animals. You know, the, the NFL team, the Washington Redskins, has been under a lot of scrutiny to change their name. I guarantee you, on the list isn't the lambs. <laughs> They're never going to see an NFL team, the Washington Lambs. Because on their own, they're, 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 they're completely ineffective, but you know what? And a lion, by the way, isn't going to go running into the middle of the pack and take out the big one in the middle. No, what he's going to do is he's going to wait. He's going to prowl around waiting for a little lamb to walk away, wander away from the, the herd. That's when he attacks or pounces, gets away from the shepherd. He's not going to go up next to the shepherd who's got a sling and a staff in his hand and a knife. He's, he's not going to do that. He's going to wait until they shift away. And that's why, again, if we're all focused on our anxieties and our problems, we can drift away. And Peter says, don't do it. Don't do that. Cast your anxieties on him and always be ready because, because our enemy is a very real enemy. He's a very personal enemy. And his desire is to devour us. Now, he understands that he can't take us away. If you are a born-again believer, he knows that your eternity is set, that you have this inheritance coming to you, but he wants to make you completely ineffective now. He knows what your command is. He knows what your chief shepherd told you to do, to go out and make disciples, to go out and change the world for him. And he says, if I can just eliminate that part, I'm fine. I've already lost their soul. They're going to heaven, but I want to make sure they don't take anybody with them. So he'll, he'll continue to come after us 
are, are bringing doubt into our mind. Doubt about God. Did, yeah, God. Yeah, God's abandoned you. God has left you. You're all alone in this. Doubting ourselves. Man, I, I call myself a Christian. It's whispering in our ear, you're going to fail. You can't do this. Even doubting our salvation. Again, bottom line, he wants us to stop walking closely with our shepherd. He wants to ruin our testimony. If he could have it his way, he's fine. If we just have a bunch of impotent churches filled with impotent Christians, he's totally cool with that. But Peter tells us that we need to be alert, that we need to be sober, we need to be focused because there's a battle that we need to fight. Now, I want to encourage you in this. If you are a born-again believer here today, and you are facing temptation and trial after trial coming at you from the enemy, take heart, because that means he considers you a threat. And that's awesome. If he considers you a threat, that means that you are doing as God is calling you to do. And he's going to come after you because of that. There's a Puritan proverb that says, there's no temptation so hard to bear as not being tempted at all. Adrian Rogers once said, if you're not butting heads with the enemy on a regular basis, make sure you're not walking the same way he is. This should be a continual battle, head-to-head con- contact. Now again, the battle is ultimately not ours. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Jesus made proclamation. The battle is over. He's won the victory. Victory is certain. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. I love the, these, these verses that, that give us encouragement as we fight this battle because it says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, that's us, since we have flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise also partook of the same. He became one of us, stepping out of heaven, becoming one of us, fully God, fully man, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, that he might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. What the author of Hebrews is saying here is that Jesus stepped out of heaven, became one of us, that by his death, he would make the enemy completely powerless. That's what that, that word there means. Powerless, cartageo, it means to make of no effect. He's still going to come after us, but he's powerless against us. Colossians 2.15 says that Jesus disarmed him. That means he kicked his teeth in. This lion that's roaring, he's, he's, he's a toothless lion because of what Jesus did on the cross. However, we got to be careful that we don't take it lightly again. This is a very real enemy. But the verse tells us in verse 9, resist him firm in your faith. Don't go running from him. Resist him. James 4, 7 says, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will what? Flee from you. Now, don't, don't misunderstand what James is saying, what Peter is saying here. He's not going to run away from you. He's going to run away from God in you. That is why, again, it is so important that we are fully submitted to him and humbly submitted to him. If we think that we're going to stand up on our own power and fight against the enemy, we are mistaken. He will devour us. But we are to resist him, firm in the faith, submitted to God. Again, God and Satan are not equals. So God in us 
That is where the power comes, and that is what he will flee from when we stand up and resist him. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10, speaking of the armor that we're supposed to go to put on, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord, not in yourself. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then he says to put on the full armor of God the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. We're to shod our, our feet with the boots, that the gospel that is to be taken out, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword, the word of God. Now, I've mentioned this before, but it bears repeating. This is a spiritual battle that we're fighting, and the armor that we are to make sure that we have on continually covers the front of us. There's no armor in the back. Why? Well, several reasons. Number one is the battle is that way. We are to be fighting the battle in front of us. There's no retreat in this. It doesn't say flee from the devil. It says resist him, and he will flee from you. Also, in Isaiah 52, 12, it says that the God of Israel will be your rear guard. God's got your back. You don't need to worry about, about the, uh, uh, an attack from behind. The battle's in front. God's got your back. But Peter also gives us another source of strength in verse 9, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. I love this. I love this. When we understand what he's saying here, that the suffering is being accomplished. That's not an, a, he's not stating that, man, there's casualties of war all over the place. Your brothers and sisters are falling like flies. No, it's being accomplished. Victory is happening. And what he's saying is we draw strength in this. Again, we're not to be out on our own. We're to be together, fighting this battle together. I saw an illustration that has just stuck with me for years now since I saw it. It was at a pastor's conference several years ago down in Tucson. And Jack Hibbs was the, the pastor that was, that was explaining this. And he was talking about how Navy SEALs fight and how two, two individual Navy SEAL members can take out a battalion of 100 enemies. How do they do it? Because they, their focus isn't behind them. Because they go back to back and they fight. He goes, I got this area, you got this area, and I don't worry about what's behind me. And in that I see a beautiful picture again of how we fight this battle. I'll take care of what's out here. You have my back. God's got our back, yes, but we fight together. We pray together. We pray for one another. That's why we place such a, a huge emphasis at Calvary Chapel on the small group ministry so that we do life together. We fight this battle together. We're all in it. And we, we, we get to know one another. We share our lives together so that when someone is facing a real battle, we're right there with them. Why do we emphasize prayer and small groups so much? Because they work. They work. That's the way God designed his body to function. Now again, the enemy will roar. The enemy isn't out to just have a good time. He's out to take us down. And this battle is real. There is, there is pain. There is suffering in the battle that we go through. The victory is ultimately secure. We know that. But in verse 10, he talks about the fact that we will suffer. Even, even he says, after you have suffered for a little while... The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. After you have suffered, again, he's not saying that you won't suffer. Even if you follow everything that he says here, there will be suffering in the battle. 
But notice he says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory. If you're an underliner, underline those two terms. Suffered for a little while versus eternal glory. The suffering is limited. It's a short time. The glory is eternal. It will never end. I love this verse as I've thought about this and talked about this because, again, we're coming in Christmas season, what a glorious time, and then, and then the new year comes after that, and we all have those New Year's resolutions. You're probably already thinking, okay, now a couple more weeks of eating really stupid and not doing anything, but then I'm going to get in shape, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to join a gym, or I'm going to do this, and wouldn't it be great if, that is, if that's your resolution, wouldn't that be great if you had the best personal trainer in the world? a fitness guru that understood everything about personal fitness and how to eat and how to exercise and how to recover. Wouldn't that be awesome? Because there's so much about fitness that I don't understand. I mean, the rest that's needed for my muscles to recuperate after I work out and, and the importance of, of the core when you're, when you're exercising, how that affects everything else that you're doing, all of those different things where a personal trainer understands that. Well, verse 10 tells us that God himself is our personal trainer. It says that his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That word perfect, it means to mend or repair so that it will function properly. Kind of like your muscles. After you work them out, they need to mend. Working out really is tearing your muscles and then they, then they grow back together so that you become stronger. God will make us what we ought to be by bringing us and mending us as we go through this. After our suffering for a little while, he mends that, making us what we should be. Confirm. That means to make firm or solid. It literally means to stabilize by placing supports alongside, like you would a wall. You'd place supports alongside it to hold it up. He'll do that. He'll be the one that, that stabilizes our core. Strengthen. It's the only time this word is used in the New Testament, and it means to cause someone to be more capable. In contrast to their weakness, someone causing you to be able to do it. And I think of this when I, I'm thinking again of exercising. I, out in my garage is where, where I work out, and I bring my, my daughter out there with me. And I hand her a 50-pound dumbbell, and I said, all right, start doing some curls. With a 50-pound, I don't even know if she could hold it, much less curl with it. But if I came alongside and grabbed it with both hands and started doing this with her, I would allow her then to curl 50 pound, a 50-pound dumbbell. And that's what this word strengthen is. Literally, Peter is saying that God's grace promises us the strength to be able to resist. He will give it to us. It's his strength. His strength in us. And then to establish Different than the word confirm, which talks about support. This literally talks about the foundation, the base. I love this. Our personal trainer, these are promises for us that he will do these things in us. He will. God himself. Now, I, we talk often about making God, understanding the personalness of God. And I would like you to, if, again, if you're a note taker, if you're, if you're somebody that does this, where it says you in verse 10, just write I. 
or, or me. After I have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called me to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish me. He wants you to take that promise personally. Regardless of what you're going through, the difficulty that you're facing, he will strengthen, confirm, establish you. Make it personal. Well, Peter closes his letter, verse 12, through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Very personal closing. He references a couple of people specifically by name. Sylvanus, probably the one who helped him write the letter. Mark, probably not his physical son, but probably Mark, the one who wrote, John Mark, the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark says she who is in Babylon, most scholars believe that this is the church in Rome that he's, he's referring to there. But just saying, guys, we love you. We send your greetings. Verse 14, keep one another, greet one another with a kiss of love. Love each other. Love each other. And peace be to you all who are in Christ. He doesn't duck anywhere in this letter the fact that we'll face suffering, that we'll face difficulties. But he says in the very end, peace be with you all. Peace be to you all. All of us, we can experience that peace. We know that. The peace that passes understanding is ours in Christ. And as we close now today, we're going to celebrate communion together. And as the, the ushers come forward and the worship team comes up, I want to go back to a verse that we read in Hebrews chapter 2 earlier. Again, it, speaking of the peace that we have, we have this peace because of the promise that is made here, the statement that is made. It says, again, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Guys, we were subject to death. We faced that fear. We faced eternal death separated from him. We faced no chance, and the enemy had us. But because of, because of Jesus taking on flesh and blood, becoming one of us, because of his death and resurrection, we are free. And that is what we celebrate that is what we celebrate when we gather together to have this communion meal together. We celebrate our freedom in him. The fact that he paid it all and the peace that we have in that. Father, we thank you for how wonderful you are. And Lord Jesus, we, we exalt you. We lift you high because you alone are worthy of our praise. We thank you for stepping out of heaven, for for becoming one of us, for living amongst us and dying for us, paying a debt that we could never pay so that we could be with you forever. 
And Lord, now as we prepare our hearts to celebrate this meal together, Lord, I pray that you would reveal to each one of us if there is anything in our lives that displease you, any, any sin that, that is in our way that, that we, have, we have given into. And Lord, as you reveal that to us, Lord, we confess it as sin. We repent of that sin and we turn to you. Lord, your word tells us that when we confess our sin, you are faithful, you will forgive that sin and you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, join us as we celebrate what you've done for us. In Jesus' name.